0: For December 13th, 2012, it's the Overthinking a Podcast, episode 702. G-Taunt. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are sitting around together talking about the things that we're interested in. Uh, we interest each other being interested more than the, uh, the interesting thing itself. I'm sure there's a Latin, that's like a Latin phrase. I'm, I'm sure, you know, somehow. Interest, interestatum, interestans, interestad. Debus, um, hey, uh, it's a story two hander. I'm Matt, and that's Pete. Hey, Pete, how are you doing?
1: You know, Matt, I'm going to try to be easy to listen to today. Just do a little <laughs> easy listening podcast for all of you.
0: Yeah, easy pod, easy podcasting. Someone yeah. made a documentary about Kenny G.
1: Yes, they did. <laughs> they made a document. You could watch it on HBO Max. It's a Bill Simmons production, though he didn't do it himself. It's, uh, you should watch it. It's called listening to Kenny G. Are you, is my mic picking that up at all? Can you hear me? It at is, all? Yeah. Wanna, no, you okay, have the, good.
0: yeah, normally I, I, uh, you know, you and I, you and I have a, uh, occupy a similar space in the sonic spectrum. And it's, it's usually Mark Lee who comes in with yeah. the chocolatey <laughs> baritone. I'm sure he has yep. EQ on his own microphone so that mm-hmm. he sounds so smooth and sexy all the time. But yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, this, this documentary um is is really in the form of a a very extended interview with Kenny G that kind of cuts away to different um you know cuts away to like different documents it's a documentary it must contain documents <laughs> You know, and many, many of the documents are, are, you know, filmed, uh, performances of, uh, Mr. G. And, uh, many of the, the documents are interviews with music critics or, or music, uh, focused academics, uh, historians or musicologists or things like this. And that's, um, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, Kenny G goes on at great length explaining. And I, I, I do feel like, Uh, the documentary was a big success in that like, uh, a picture of the world of the man emerged. Uh, you know what I mean. That like at the end, the picture that I, I I arrived at of Kenny G based on the the documentary, um, seems to explain a lot of the phenomena that I've the G adjacent or adjacent phenomena that I've observed out there in the world, out there in the universe, and that like uh you know it uh it seemed to make um it seemed to make uh, sense to me. Now I I. I uh, got sick of hearing the pentatonic scale over and over and over and over and over. But like, well, <laughs> major and minor, like you know, starting on the starting on the one or starting on the the uh, six. But like, ah, you know, it's, uh, there I, I suppose there are worse fates. I don't know, Pete. I, I assume just from knowing you uh, and knowing how your relationships with things are that your relationship with Kenny G is very simple and straightforward. So why don't you tell us about that?
1: Matt, I have a lot of complicated relationships, but I'll I'll try to relay them in a smooth, easy-to-appreciate-and-understand tone that doesn't jar you, that uh, helps you get through your work day because Lord knows the world is tough enough without this podcast making it harder for you, am I right? Yeah. That's right. It's smooth OTI here today, coming to you from the quiet, stormy, dual coasts of the wonderful mm-hmm. United States of America. Yes, I have a bit of a complicated relationship with Kenny G. I will illustrate it in three points. The first is that my father— has a candle, a large candle, that he keeps in his bathroom. And when you open the door to the bathroom, the lights come on, and the candle starts playing Kenny G. And he puts it out <laughs> for Christmas. <laughs> Wait.
0: The candle? St- okay, it's a candle set, a candle stick, or
1: a candle... Well, there's a whole apparatus. I'm reusing the <laughs> word candle to I what I suppose syne- synecdotally refer to Understood. a... Set up of a candle, a candle stand, I guess, or a stick, I suppose. Mm. It's a thick one. It's one of those big boys. It's one of those <laughs> candles that melts that cylinder down in the middle and still keeps the walls of wax around the outside so that the candle seems to be of undiminished height for the entirety of the time which you're using it until, of course, it burns too low and too long and the walls come crashing down like Jericho after the trumpets blew. But yes, no, it's uh, my dad has a Kenny G candle and it uh, plays a Kenny G song and I don't know which one it is. So but I've heard it many, many times and he puts it out for Christmas. I think it might be Silent Night now that I think about it. It might be a very uh, ornamental version of Silent Night. The, know, the
0: ironically oh, named
1: Silent Night. Exactly. Which people make noise during. I don't know why. Why is everyone talking? It's supposed to be quiet. <laughs> but yes. So that's number, item one. That's that just gives you a little bit of a of a a little a little taste of where Kenny G is. It, uh, reminders of hearing him in old uh, family vacations and this remnant of it that sits in a ba- in a bathroom on Christmas. And now the second piece is that when I was I want to say about 14 years old, when did Kenny G's Breathless come out? Matt, do you remember? I don't, but I'll look it up. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. So around the time that Breathless came out, my aunt sent me, as a Christmas present, Breathless by Kenny G. Mm. And she sent to me, presumably because I play an instrument in a band at the time in school, because I was a trombone player, right? Mm. And uh, and that's, of course, part of the context in which the Overthinking Podcast came together in the first place, is people having a passion for musical instruments, but... Not enough gigs playing musical instruments to uh, to make that the sole focus of their time and attention. So my aunt sent me a Kenny G CD, and that year my mother made a particular point for no particular reason. It was just the time to do it. That we needed to write some thank you notes to our family members who sent us gifts, which of course is something you should always do, and I think it's very nice. I don't do it nearly as often as I should. Matt, do you write a lot of thank you notes for your family and friends?
0: Not as many, not as many as nearly I should, but I do have a set of like correspondence cards, and from time to time I I scribble something down and send it off to folks.
1: Do you aspire to perfection, perhaps with a soprano saxophone and a moonlit night? I,
0: I mean, I, I aspired to perfection with Moonlight Night. I don't know what I would be doing with the soprano saxophone. That sounds. You know, like, you know. there's
1: the only one man we can ask that question to on the podcast tonight is Mr. G himself. So <laughs> yes, uh, so I wrote a thank you note for getting a Kenny G CD, and then every year for the subsequent years that I received presents from my aunt, I would get a different Kenny G CD. <laughs> there are many of them. <laughs> so uh, I also got a bright green T-shirt with the Kenny G CD, and. Uh, a bunch of other really uh, neon-colored clothing. So I wouldn't say that I had a particularly unique or notable fondness for Mr. G's work at the time. But uh, the the moral of the story is that if people don't have any information about you and you give them one piece of information, they're going to assume through the – cognitive process of representativeness that reflects who you are as a person entirely and is the only thing that you like so if you only ever correspond to somebody with a single thank you note uh you can be confident that's the only present they'll ever get you again so uh if you get a kenny g cd from somebody which would be a very strange gift to get these days though hey why not right surprise the person in your life with kenny g's christmas album which is full of soprano saxophone I would be Pete like that
0: Yeah, I'm a I'm a little afraid Pete that I'm getting into that territory uh with bassoon stuff. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's all that anyone anyone uh anyone ever sends me. In my I had a uh like a family friend, sort of friend of a friend type person um whose uh godmother w- let it be known that she liked Ladybug things. And so, uh, in the course of her, like 96 years on, on, uh, on the earth, like when you, when she stepped into her 10th decade, her apartment was floor to ceiling with just ladybug, ladybug, everything, ladybug prints on the walls, ladybug switch plates on the light switches, ladybug throw pillows, ladybug, uh, you know, kitchen utensils, ladybug potholders, ladybug dish towels, ladybug spoon rests, uh, uh yeah you know decorative uh decorative ladybug I, I can i can't even think of more the ladybug soap dish you know ladybug toothbrush and it was all and then like to say nothing of the apparel to say nothing of the ladybug uh ladybug hats and gloves the ladybug jackets the ladybug brooches the whole and I, i'm afraid we're getting like that with with basset Hound. so we've kind of an inst- we've instituted a one in one out uh, policy, and we're getting rid of some of the basset paraphernalia, uh, uh, you know, in preparation for Christmas. When surely a new, a new cavalcade, a new avalanche. What's the what's the collective noun for for basset uh, basset hounds? When when a new sopping drool puddle of basset hounds uh, is sure to wash over
1: us. a flopping of basset hounds.
0: Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, unto us a child is unto us a child is born. All right, Pete. So uh, there is a candle there is a paternal candle uh there's a a uh paternal a bathroom related candle there is a um ant what is a what's the adjective for ant there is an ant related uh
1: they don't uh, have a cool one like avuncular
0: yeah uxorious right. or avuncular mm-hmm. or paternal or something <laughs> like that yeah exactly um uh, d- d- set of of presents that you thought that you should get, uh, or that, that that your aunt thought that you should get. I mean, perfectly rationally from her point of view. And what's the third? What's the third piece of the uh,
1: of the the Kenny G puzzle here? Well, the third piece of the puzzle, I should say, is that way back in the day, there is a particular sort of person who is described in the Kenny G documentary, and that person is someone who does focus groups for radio stations. And I did that a little bit when I was a teenager. I would get phone calls. I didn't go in person, but I would get phone calls from market research group and they would ask me, about the radio stations that I listened to and what songs that I like to hear on them. They would suggest artists to me and ask me if I liked the artist or if I thought it belonged to the format of the radio station. I, I, from the standpoint of a market research subject, watched the classic rock genre make its shift from a coherent notion of a classical period to merely the idea of white guys with guitars, which is sort of what it is now, right? Which, sure. which raises a further question, the idea that cl- the classic period of rock – is not a time that can be said to exist. It is merely a uh, a moving range, like uh, like a yodeling alpine climber in a Prices Right game that drifts with the uh, the march of time and the uh, the generations that pass. As classic rock gets newer and newer, uh, classic rock uh, you keep getting an older and it does too. Well, it actually, goes the other way and makes you feel older while it's doing it. But at any rate, uh, I remember. Because I was in this focus group when a new radio station launched in the New York area, I received a cassette tape in the mail promoting the launch of the radio station that radio station is called cd 101.9 new york smooth jazz uh, i don't know if you ever listened reliably or often to a smooth jazz radio station man but let me tell you i liked that cassette tape a lot and i added cd 101.9 to my favorite radio stations on my little boombox and i listened to it quite a bit i would have to say that uh I mean, even I would hesitate to call myself a fan of smooth jazz, like an enthusiast, but I liked it. I liked it a great deal. And, uh, when you think about juxtaposing it against the, um, the heroin-torn screams of rage that were coming from the guitar-driven radio stations and the uh, bullet-shredded, poverty-soaked screams of rage that were coming from the urban contemporary and uh, rap-hip-hop radio stations at the time, a little smooth jazz wasn't entirely uncalled <laughs> <before. laughs>
0: Never, Never hurt no one, is what you're One saying.
1: hand, one side, everyone's getting shot, and the other hand, everyone's shooting themselves. So uh, why don't you listen to a little saxophone and kick back with CD 101.9. <laughs> Today oh, is smooth. Smooth jazz. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> the the deeper story, of course, and I guess there's a fourth thing here, but I want to bring this up and I want to see what think what you have to say about it too. Is as somebody who played the trombone, and I loved playing the trombone, and this is I think a part of the Kenny G documentary. It's sort of a bit of a blank spot in the documentary that sort of touched on, but I don't think the documentarist necessarily understood this experience enough to talk about it. So I'm glad we can provide a little extra perspective. Uh, You become something of a tool without a task. (laughs) right? Uh, as a become, trombone player. As a trombone player, you become a hammer without a nail, right? There's you only,
0: can, yeah, there's only so many wah, 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 wah that people oh, need, right?
1: Yeah. And there's, the, nobody's recording hot new takes on Holst for Top 40 Radio, right? Uh, I mean, I'm sure they are doing it somewhere for some purpose, but not for the purpose of hustling at the record machine with your sixth string in the classic Jersey style, right? So uh, as a trombone player, I've played in jazz bands, Dixie bands, ska bands, certainly. And uh, terrible at all of them. None of them worked. Didn't feel at home in any of them. Tried to write the kind of songs that I wanted to see and was openly mocked by anybody else in the band who ever read them. So, uh, which was fair because they were entirely off base for the kind of music that we were making at the time. And I would say that something that Smooth Jazz did for me as a fan of instrumental music, which is probably the best thing to describe it as, better than Smooth Jazz, is sort of, you know, pop, instrumental-driven pop music. Pop music that has an instrument as the melodic voice rather than a singer, Right. Uh, And yeah, perhaps even adult contemporary pop music and ballad music, right, song forms, right, that has just a a melodic saxophone or piano or whatever instead of somebody singing lyrics. Although often, of course, Kenny G did have lyrics such as with Peebo Bryson and Before This Night is Over, which is not touched on in the documentary, which is unfortunate because that one reminds me of the beach. But the point is that it was really cool to hear a radio station where people were playing a musical instrument like I was trained to do. And I knew I was never going to be a huge successful jazz trombonist. I tried, but you know, a little bit too stiff and rigid and didn't really have a passion for it. I have some contemporaries from my, from my class who went on and stayed committed to jazz, but I wasn't going to. And, uh, you know, you're all lucky for it, because now I've done a podcast for 12 years. <laughs> right? So I wouldn't have done that if I was playing in a jazz band, I suppose. But anyway, Matt, have you, you ever felt like a tool in need of a task? You ever I, felt like a Kenny without a G? Oh,
0: my God. Every, I mean, every day. Uh, I mean, I've had an MFA, Pete. <laughs> <That's, you> know, <laughs> I am highly trained in the craft of acting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, – yeah, I guess yeah. – I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. My, my, uh, I guess my, my teenage years were a lot, a lot less, uh, you, you sound so relaxed as a teenager with all of your smooth jazz. And I
1: that is, that is the, the form belying the function. I was was, was not listening to a lot of smooth jazz. It was like station four station one still involved a lot of screaming. Uh, don't worry about that. Don't you worry about that. (laughs) If anything, I was more into new age kind of techno pop Not even not techno. that's the wrong word for it. Uh, I don't even know what you would call it. Like a lot of the things that I listened to at the time uh, there. I don't have the right words, but um, I was a big fan of new agey instrumental, uh, like sort of the backing track for Enya without Enya. Uh, I loved the band Cusco, which I think was a German Inca band. I had a CD called uh, Whispers Across the Sand, which was sort of new age 90 techno inspired kind of traditional Arabic music. Um, I had this whole streak that would do this sort of stuff, and then I also have like lots of Pearl Jam, right? Um, and so on and so forth. Mm. But uh, so it's it's there, right? But but it wasn't Kenny G wasn't really my wheelhouse when it came to this stuff as much uh as much as some of the other kinds of stuff. Um, I will say, what was it called? Ottawa Pack Two, that particular Cusco album, which was used in a uh, Miller Dry Ice commercial, I think. <laughs> um, I'm, I don't know what that beer was called. It was a uh, it was an ice beer that had a wolf in the commercial and they use this particular pan pipe, uh, EDM song that I liked a lot. Uh, that's more my, uh, my instrumental melodic pop speed than Kenny G per se. But at any rate, Sorry, Matt, I interrupted no, you talking about your childhood.
0: Not at all. I, get, I just I become call. I become hypnotized and and I you know also I just I have been
1: doing this the whole time, Matt? Just, is this just actually better radio.
0: staring at the staring at the stopwatch just wondering, you know, <laughs> when is it going to be over? <laughs> how, no, just just how much you're committed to the bit. It's almost like uh it's almost like Kenny G holding a single note for a world record. <laughs> A world record-breaking uh, period, period I do, of time. I
1: do, I do love in the documentary how someone tries to say that Kenny G patented circular breathing, which is, of course, absurd. Because as is late, much, much later said in the documentary, every top-level saxophonist, even mid-level saxophonist, can do that. Some right? version.
0: Can, yeah, some version yeah, of, of circular exactly, breathing.
1: Exactly. But and he doesn't try. He tries to resist it being called his thing. But he's like, yeah. If you guys want to talk, say that, you know. <laughs>
0: I mean, I, I don't know. The thing that impresses me about Kenny G circular breathing is like the number of things he has going on at the same time. You yeah, know, he's generally he makes a show
1: of it. It's like carrot top. It's great.
0: <laughs> he's generally playing one of those like really fast pentatonic licks that he plays. it's great
1: because you never have to worry about the beginning or end of the scale. You just keep
0: going. Just up and down. It doesn't.
1: It's like a circle. Matt, if you have a band called Pentatonic. Listen, I've heard the good news about Pentatonix. They count to 5 with Sesame Street. It was pretty great.
0: Oh, that's good. Um, they, they yeah, uh, they um yeah, they I ironically have more harmonic <laughs> complexity than your than your average Kenny G-song. Um the uh yeah, it's it's uh god, it's it's just sanded down to such a uh, not rough but oh, smooth. Yeah, is what it <laughs> is is what it is what it is. I don't know. So I, you know, I was talking, I was sort of thinking back over, over my teenage years, like when Kenny G was a big, like global world beating phenomenon, you know, And and it, it coincided with the time for me, whereas like an insecure, as like a smart, but like very deeply insecure teenager, I, I like a, a, um, you know, a, a person who'd, who'd, um, right a person who'd been uh whose architecture of self-esteem had been subjected to a a you know generations long lineage of of german mothering um the the i i had you know i i like was sort of desperate to prove that i wasn't like dumb or like you know or or really like that that i i sort of wasn't i didn't like kid things you know like it was really like wanted to be uh wanted to be wanted to be a grown-up like a lot of like a lot of kids do I, I think my particular flavor of it had kind of a desperate uh had kind of a desperate bent because I was like really like really gunning to be in charge of my life and not um you know, not kind of, uh, living at the whims of the, of the grownups who were, who were largely, uh, who, if they were not mean, were stupid. Um, the, which is an exaggeration, but not as much of one as you would, as you would imagine. So the, the, uh, the relationship I had with music was that, like, I guess, like a lot of teenagers, right? Like, it's the time where you're defined more like, more by what you reject than by what you like. And you, you kind of want to like rush to like, you want to rush to poop on things before someone else can like paint you as, as being for them. And like, and in, into this, like, like, Dark, you know, uh, this kind of dark storm of the soul was dropped, uh, a, a little album called Kenichi's breathless. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that the, that the, you know, Seattle saxophonist had, uh, just didn't have a chance. <laughs> you know, <like> it wouldn't, <laughs> I mean, no matter what, it could have been the, the greatest thing, but I, you know, I also like, I, I also had a, like, as a smart teenager who was getting into artsy stuff, I, like, I was, I was being sort of trained or was training myself or was like coming to prize things that were, that were difficult and in, instead of things that were easy, like things that were kind of confounding rather than things that were so immediately gratifying and, or confounding at first, I should say. Um, and that like, you know, it's like, it's when I was uh, 15, I had my first experience attempting to read Gravity's Rainbow, you know, and uh, I didn't get through it. And I didn't really get a lot of the words. I didn't really get a lot of what it was about. Like, as I sort of dutifully, uh, you know, as I dutifully, like, uh, dragged my eyes word to word to word and, and sub vocalized them, trying to like, put them together into some coherent picture of what what this novel might might mean, but like that was the sort of experience that I was after because you know I, I felt like because I, I had something to prove, you know I, I had I, a chip on my shoulder and that like I couldn't I couldn't get to like. Um, I couldn't get to like Kenny G and I, and I also had to, you know, be, be like really mean about it, uh, in order to kind of shore up my own identity, uh, which is regrettable, you know, that's a, that's not a great way to be. And I (laughs) didn't bring a lot of, uh, joy or happiness to me or, or, uh, anyone. So, you know, I don't know, I've, I've arrived at a, at a kind of, um, at a kind of, uh, detente, a kind of G-tente, uh, with, uh, with Kenny, with Kenny Grolik. And, uh, I, I sort of, I, I think it's kind of not for me. Uh, but we are also, um, but like, I, I'm also, I don't begrudge anyone. I don't begrudge anyone who really lo- loves it. Like, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. Uh, I, I do. I mean, I think there are some, some like, kind of troubling uh if, if you want to use the a word you know uh the, which is which in this case Alto? is like, <laughs> uh, i was thinking appropriation <laughs>
1: like oh. if you want
0: if you want to talk about a uh if you want to talk about a white musician working in a black idiom and and sort of you know get a deriving fame and fortune from it uh like the um I I think there's some like troubling things to his career, but th- those are things that happen, you know, at the level of of the business and at the level of the culture as though those two things can can be separated they're they're not like encoded somehow as secret messages into the into the sounds of the smooth jazz and it's not um you know it's sort of uh, not his fault but what i mean what what would you say what what picture of Kenny G emerges on this documentary for you like or or what did you go into it thinking and were your were your thoughts confirmed or were they were they you know evolved
1: somehow I would say, thinking about Kenny G. Yeah. the picture painted was a and
0: we're surprise. all we're all thinking about Kenny G exactly. Aren't we? Think, you know I've... I'm thinking about Kenny G, and this song goes out to Kenny G. And the... when you
1: think about people who dwelled in that similar sort of space, I think Kenny G, I think John Tesh, I think Yanni live at the Acropolis. Are you mm. a Yanni fan, Matt?
0: um i I mean, I'm an Acropolis fan.
1: there you go. <laughs> Well, y- Yanni, of course, similar to Kenny G, uh, refused, I think, to study music theory and didn't even read music, but wrote big orchestral pieces. Uh, and uh, you like the part in the documentary where Kenny G says that he thought music theory was boring, so he just practiced for an extra hour. That was pretty great. Uh, I think that so many of the things that we've encountered on HBO Max have been, oh, this is going to be weirder than you thought it was going to be, Right. right. And I expected Kenny G's story to be weirder than I thought it was going to be. It was aggressively more normal Uh than I thought it was going to be. Kenny G is – the only thing that really separates Kenny G from anybody else is that he plays saxophone rather than plays guitar. I think the story of Kenny G is something that has happened many times to people who play guitar. Which is that he's a musical virtuoso who practiced really hard and got really good at playing his instrument, who came up with a way of playing music that was sort of familiar and it was a little bit different. He put his own spin on it. He had a certain battle with authority over it that he was he won only because we're the he's the one that we hear about right it's the kenny g anthropic principle there were all sorts of other saxophonists who didn't do what he did and he sticks it to the man in some medium small medium or large way and he becomes really popular and uh he feels pretty good about it right like uh, he doesn't collapse into drugs or anything he becomes a good golfer i like the part where he said that his music awards are Subjective and thus kind of dispensable, but his golf awards, he won those. And uh, I thought that was pretty great, but yeah,
0: by beating someone, he won them by beating someone.
1: I didn't expect Kenny G to be quite so committed, a technical instrumentalist Uh, in terms of what he thinks about when he thinks about music. I expected to be more like Yanni or like John Tesh talking in terms of passion, talking in terms of the feelings, Right. And while Kenny G talks a little bit about the feeling of the music, you get the sense that words really aren't his deal, right? And he, uh, he but he, he his, his engagement with his instrument and with his meta instrument, which is the electronic processing of his instrument, right, mm-hmm. and editing and stuff, is the main thing that he, that makes him him as distinct from other musicians. There were there were I would say a few big contradictions in the documentary that I found really interesting. And that I think speak to concepts that for overthinkers, I got to bring it back down as getting excited. I got to make sure I keep it smooth, easy listening that uh, as overthinkers, you should be kind of familiar with because we talk about them all the time. But I think for a lot of other people in different discourses, drink, they wouldn't be as familiar with it. So, for example, right, this documentary claims both that a Kenny G, his music is entirely separated from the history of jazz, is not in dialogue with the history of jazz, is not even in dialogue with any other musician, and stands alone as a pretender, right? Or, or suppose as, as a sort of, uh, as a sort of stump, a sort of phantom limb, right? That is, that is his main crime is its separation from history, but also it is level that Kenny G that he is, uh, you know, sort of co-opting jazz, right? And that, that. He is a knowing or unknowing instrument in the financial, the word financial marginalization is used. The financial marginalization of jazz, which is pretty funny when you consider, uh, whether there was ever a time period where jazz wasn't financially, um, marginalized in some way or another. I suppose, I suppose there's a period in which popular music was largely jazz inspired, but it had a lot of the same problems, uh, in a real way that Kenny G has in, in a debatable way, right? Which is, Can you be both entirely separate from this history and not paying attention to it and also appropriating it and exploiting it? I mean, the theoretical answer is, of course, but it's interesting that that contradiction exists. And also the contradiction of Kenny G saying that his style was an attempt to imitate a specific jazz musician and also saying that he has no particular relationship with jazz or with his race, right? Mm. And I don't necessarily think he's lying. But I think people have contextual memories related to different things. And and he's self-protective a little bit, although, of course, he talks and talks and talks about all this stuff. And you get the sense he's trying to be as honest as he can be. So, so that's one of the big contradictions that sprung up for me was the idea that Kenny G, um, how much of Kenny G being a jazz musician is something that other people put on Kenny G? And how much of it comes from Kenny G? And in particular, what I'm interested in is how much does the tradition of jazz create the occasion for Kenny. What's his last name? It's not Gorsuch. It's G- something. Gorelick. Kenny Gorelick to or learn Gorelick, to play saxophone. I guess. Right? Like jazz creates the occasion for Kenny G to learn to play the saxophone. Uh-huh. Does it necessarily inform the tradition of music that Kenny G enters into once he is a professional saxophonist. This is a man who played, he said he played for the circus when it was in town, right? He played for anybody. Well, he was a session
0: musician. Yeah. He was, he was essentially like a live band, you know, just a jobbing live band musician. And that's like, you know, in, in that you don't have a sound, like you just adopt the sound of whoever the, whatever the act is that, that you're, you're backing up and you become, you become a sort of encyclopedia, you know, and that's, uh, um, I, I don't know, kind of where where he comes from. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's interesting that the. Sorry, I want to jump into something no, no, said, you said, but you haven't you haven't even finished your you haven't even finished your point. It's just been flowing yeah. like smooth jazz. Donna. Easy
1: podcast listening. Um, We're going to talk to Adnan Sayed soon about whether he killed that girl or not at the Radio Shack telephone. It's a Best Buy telephone. That's right. Um, and he's going to talk with Bo Burnham. No, not Bo Burnham. Bo Bergdahl. The three of them on a conference call. Uh, it's going to be a shocker. No, no, no. Um, It is amazing how smooth, smooth radio can communicate even highly stressful and agitating situations. Um, But yes, I would say that I came away from this wondering the who is the agent, right? Who has the agency that settles to calling Kenny G jazz, Mm -hmm. right? Like what where does the jazzness of Kenny G come from? What frame does it come from? Um, I, I wanted to say a little bit at the beginning of this podcast, but I'll say it now as a bit of, usually a bit of introductory content. The Kenny G documentary is a better movie about the matrix than the matrix is.
0: <laughs> there are a
1: lot of matrices. There's a lot of realities and realities behind realities. And people think things are one way because of a certain sort of, uh, you can ideology. The moment of that,
0: the moment was actually, he, he let it slip. Like the mask always slips, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and that, uh, the, the saxophone may never, but the, the mask. (laughs) always does and and when when he said like god when someone uh said it was a contemporary interview from the early 90s gosh to 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 what do you uh, everyone is playing all uh your music on all on all different formats all different radio stations all over the country like to what do you attribute this massive popularity and his answer was clive davis yeah. You know, and yeah, that, and that sure. was like, it's almost like you're not, so, that's saying the quiet part out loud. You yeah. know, that's like, that's letting someone hear the breath in the long sustained circular breathing saxophone note. All they're supposed to, to, to see is the, the saxophone note, the pure unadulterated waveform gliding an arc, a trajectory over the heads of the audience and into eternity out to the horizon where lies infinite.
1: Here's the thing, people think that Kenny G is Agent Smith, but really Kenny G has been morpheus the whole time. He's (laughs) just very chill about it. He's just very relaxed. He's just been telling you the truth. Right? How are you uh, how
0: are you going to play saxophone with no mouth?
1: Oh, it's very, it's somewhat rare that you paralyze me with laughter at the middle of a podcast, but that was wonderful. But yes, well, because there's, there's all sorts of matrices, right? There's the idea that people have these intolerable lives that require a soundtrack in order to compose themselves to. Uh, um, I will, I will ask another brief, brief mini Kenny G related tangent. Do you have music that you listen to when you need to work?
0: And yes. is it different
1: than the music you listen to when you don't need to work.
0: Uh, yes, I've I've been doing YouTube a lot recently, which is very bad for productivity because anything that that requires the like the engagement of the discursive part of my brain, especially if I have to do like computer programming mm. or writing emails or you know I don't know de- dealing dealing with really anything that requires some sort of uh, that is you know more than like low level administration or like configure like uh, rote configuration of a computer system. I I need that I need something without without lyrics and so I I. I uh, have have a lo-fi hip-hop <laughs> uh,
1: oh, uh,
0: lo-fi hip-hop that's
1: that's the descendant of kenny g right there is lo-fi hip-hop don't right?
0: shut your whore mouth what? <laughs> that is, that is
1: <laughs> am i not correct
0: uh, of course you're right i just hate <laughs> i just hate to see myself well let, i hate okay. i hate to see what i've become beat. well okay okay well, let, let, <laughs> i'm sorry let, that might right. have been projection
1: no let's let's back up let's back up the season of neon genesis evangelion a little bit when we're talking about human Mentality, right? <laughs> like, just because the music is used for a particular purpose doesn't necessarily mean that that was the occasion for its creation, the intent of its creator, right? Or necessarily the only or singular way in which. It might be used in much the same way that, you know, exoskeletons and endoskeletons both can create legs. They do so very differently. You're sort of filling a niche. So but when I say – I, I yeah. told
0: you, Pete, once the story of my college roommate, Alex, who was a classical guitarist, uh, mm. didn't I? And I he uh, he stayed –
1: Yale was we're doing – th- We're going to hear all about it on the Overthinking of Podcast <laughs> on the here Overthinking on Smooth Podcast. So stayed, uh, he stayed
0: – they were doing a deal that for like five, you know two for the price of five or something like that where you got – a, a bachelor's, a, a BA, and a master of music uh, mm. in five years. Where you Good did- value right there, <laughs> sure, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can yeah, buy definitely. the giant caramel popcorn if you want. Before- but why would I want to buy any caramel popcorn? But you can get the big one,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, but the um, uh. The, I so I was once talking talking with him about this and it's like, oh wow, you know, you're gonna do the master music. It's like, yeah, you know, I enjoy it and I can stay though, you know, and there's some kind of support for this uh, thing, you know, in, in order to do it. And so like, uh, I can stay and it's, it's more or less like revenue neutral as far as the student loans are concerned. And like, you yeah, know, why not? I, I enjoy doing it. And so I'm going to study this thing and for what it's, it's like, okay, well, what's the, what's the, you know, and then like, can you go out into the world and kind of work professionally as a, um, classical guitarist. And he said, Matt, you don't understand. As a classical guitarist, the greatest aspiration that you have is that you'll make some album that they will sell in Starbucks and someone will buy it and put it on in the morning as they're having their coffee because they find it inoffensive. Uh, that would be... um titanic success that would be colossal success as a uh as a classical guitarist i always i don't know i something about that i I always found kind of admirable the kind of like the very gimlet-eyed like uh assessment of the the Realities of the, the commercial future of this thing that, that, um, he was very, very, very good at, <laughs> like extremely good. Yeah. Among the best in the world at this, at this, you know, particular thing that there was absolutely no demand for out there in the marketplace.
1: I wonder what that feels like, Matt. Be the best at something that no one, no one is going to pay for. <laughs>
0: Overthinking com no, slash join membership. to yes, uh, <laughs> to, we, love them so much. we they actually the record. Coolest.
1: They are the smooth, they're the true smoothness.
0: <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, they bring the smoothness, smoothness to our jazz, to our, to our, you know, free jazz, uh, hard bop. We bring the hard top and they bring the smoothness to it. Uh, yeah, head, head over to overthinking.com slash join to support us with a, a, monthly gift of money that keeps the servers running, uh, around here. And, and you'll get things like the question of the week, which we record, uh, occasionally for, uh, for these podcasts. We actually recorded one for this, um, for this, uh, podcast. And we, uh, the question of the week was, uh, if you had to choose a stage name for yourself as, uh, Kenny Gorlick became Kenny G. Uh, what stage name for, would you choose? And so you get a little bit of, uh, you get a little bit of insight into, to Pete and me by, um, by becoming a member and listening to that, uh, listening to that question of the week. But, um, uh, yeah. And Anyway, I'm sorry. Where, where, where were we? I was, you know, uh, Matt, I was projecting, hand- I was projecting my, my, uh, my rage, but it's really rage at myself, Pete, at, you know, at, at what I've become. No, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing. Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> but that, but yeah, no, that's what, that's, that's what I put on. It's, you know, um, now I, I, I very often listen to microtonal, uh, lo-fi hip-hop. Ooh. So it's, what you is know, that? Uh, it's tuned to, well, it uses, uh, it uses pitches that are not in the equally tempered uh piano scale you know Mm. so it it might be uh you know it might be that the like the third scale degree you know is a is a few cents flat of what you would expect it to be or a few cents sharp in order to create a uh uh in order to create a sonic effect so i mean there is would uh, would
1: bach refer to that as a stanky clavier
0: (laughs) the 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 the, the well stank the johan
1: bootsy bach (laughs)
0: um well i mean the the um the well-tempered clavier is uh if if memory serves like my it's been a long time since college music theory but that the system we use is called uh equally tempered tuning where we bend all of the notes out of position out of their like absolute mathematically pythagorean perfect position um we bend all of them just a little bit so that you can play in any of the 12 keys right uh at on a on a piano keyboard but um But the well-tempered clavier is not a clavier that someone has tempered, uh, in a skillful manner (laughs) in a well, in a well temperament is, uh, an alternative to equal temperament. And, and it's not at, at least as far as I'm aware, it's not something that we know exactly what it is. So we actually don't know how stanky a lot of, uh, a lot of Bach's well-tempered clavier was was supposed to be, um, which is sort of an interesting interesting thing too. Uh, interesting thing thing to. Th- Think about that. You know, we might not understand. Uh, we might, we our canonical appreciation of this music might be very different um, from the uh, the way it was originally intended. Which I would suggest to you is not unrelated yes. to Kenny G. Kenny, G,
1: Kenny G's podcast.
0: relationship to, um, you know, to the jazz tradition. And I, I think that, like, uh, yeah, it is interesting. Like you, you you do sort of bring a knife to a gunfight a little bit when you talk with jazz musicians about whether Kenny G is, is jazz, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you sort of, I don't know, you bring a, um, and you sort of bring a, a knife to a protractor fight, uh, when you talk with the academics
1: about yeah, or Kenny G himself. <laughs>
0: you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little, I mean, a little bit like he, he, um, I don't know it's funny his defensiveness is is uh revealed most by how like how stridently he wants you to understand that he is not defensive at all, and like if they want it that way, that's okay, and it's I have my things that I like, and they have their things that they're like, and they're entitled to their uh their it's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> you know, that's, um, I, I thought, but, but, you know, if, if you look at, uh, if you look at jazz as a music that's, that's rooted in, in crucial ways in, uh, in the African American experience, in the experience of like Black Americans throughout the 20th century, and like look at, you know, um, like, uh, look at, uh, uh, Miles Davis being beaten by a police officer outside his own gig, uh, in New York city, right? Like, well, Kenny G has never been beaten by a police officer outside of, uh, his own gig. I I mean, that I know about, I guess maybe, uh, maybe there's some jazz purists on the force, I guess, but the, uh, you know, but the, the, for, for some people, and I, I, it's a coherent position and one that I sort of acknowledge, like the conversation begins and ends there, right? Like sort of, um, treating a uh, uh i don't know treating a tradition as a um i don't know opp- opportunity for for monetizing right like and you have uh, you have this thing. I mean, it's interesting the the way it was described. Smooth jazz was described. If like, if you're not a kid, you know, say you, say you're getting your first job and you're not a kid anymore and you don't want to listen to that rock and roll, but like, uh, uh, classical music might be a little too cerebral for you is how one of the talking heads in the documentary puts it like, Hey, maybe you want to listen to, maybe you want to listen to jazz. Right. And like sort of find finding it and just exploiting it as a category. Um, you know in an entirely commercial way without reference to the um without reference to the to the history of it or without like being in dialogue uh with the history of it, it you know is definitely going to rub some people the wrong way like and that i i uh i get that but i i am interested in what what you're saying um you know i i am interested in in what you're saying that like okay it's it's jazz to the extent that jazz was the occasion uh, for Gen- Kenny G to pick up the, the, um the saxophone for the first time and kind of work in this idiom work in this like, uh, in the idiom of like, a uh, a, a rhythm section, you know, as opposed to the idiom of like a marching band or I guess the idiom of an orchestra or something like that. So that, that like, you know, that playing, playing saxophone with a rhythm section is not going to happen outside of the context of, of like a high school jazz band. And that's, uh, that's how we got, Um, that's how he got Kenny G. And so it's, it's sort of jazz derived, you know, I, I suppose in the same way that, uh, in the same way, Pete, that Splenda is sugar derived, (laughs) Kenny G is jazz derived. So like you started with jazz and then you perform a number of chemical transformations upon it so that, uh, it doesn't resemble, uh, it doesn't resemble the old thing anymore. Um, yeah, that that's anyway. That's there. There's a lot in there. Yeah, pick up on whatever you
1: want. <laughs> sure, of course. So, uh, so okay. So thinking about jazz so there's two particular pieces of literary criticism that come to mind when i'm trying to think about a way a more comfortable sort of language i do wish some of our more uh musical theoretical uh musicological overthinkers were here to talk about this but you know with kenny g it's it's the people the people don't listen to it because they are deeply familiar with the theory of the music they listen to it because it's smooth <laughs> but um uh, at any rate i would say that um uh, the two pieces of literary criticism that come to mind for this are, on one hand, t s. Eliot's tradition in the individual talents, uh-huh. right? And then on the other hand, Alexander Pope's uh, an essay on criticism, uh-huh. right, which both outline entirely opposite and completely incompatible ways of approaching the work of poetry, right? Um, and they strike me as ways that you can think about the different sorts of approaches to music that are happening in a uh, meta artistic kind of influence oriented sort of way. I, I would also suggest that uh, I always love it when a major writer writes down their thinking about their own theory. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can refer to that like the, the preface to the lyrical ballads or sure. what are some other good ones of like this, which you can always turn to these sort of short essays or intros to other works as an articulation or manifesto of principles.
0: I mean, um, uh, Eliot
1: Elliot wrote one, right? Didn't yeah, tradition he? And the individual talent, right? Oh, For, there you, you talk, go. That's, yes, that's what I'm course. talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. Right.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, the, the poets in our civilization as it exists at present must be difficult.
1: <laughs> Yes. You know? See, then that's the rub, right? That's the rub. So the, the contrast here, I think that the jazz musicians who are coming from it feel very much like Eliot scholars to me or like Eliot himself, right? And we, of course, have records of the big uh frost pound letters arguing about poetry. But when you think about Alexander Pope in particular, I, I pick Alexander Pope not without a – chuckling sense of irony as he is perhaps the kenny Gist of the major english poets um, at times but uh but but uh you know t.s Eliot is saying you know your work should be difficult right and and correct me if i'm getting into this summary a little summarized summarize or a little bit off uh, but you're also you're building off of stuff that's come before you right and if you're a really great writer then you're going to uh you know Challenge it. Right. And bring it out. And I and I associate it with, you know, strong and weak misreading and and Harold Bloom and all that. Right. But this idea that you have to be in this state of conflict with the work that's come before you in order to be building on it in a meaningful way. Right. Um, As opposed to. Alexander Pope, who says, D- don't get too big for your britches, right? You know, the history of of art and of nature and of all of those beautiful things that you may or may not want to write poetry about is bigger than you, and you shouldn't orient your work in such a way that you presume to be greater than it. Don't be vulgar. Don't be extreme, right? Reflect what you see and, and what comes to you and the great work of people that have come before you, uh, but also in particular, the, the the sort of spirit of the world, right? He He writes his criticism— in poetry in verse right and anonymously of course um but uh but i but i wouldn't say that it is a argument that reaches a lot of gets a lot of respect right the idea of like uh yeah don't make your poetry too extreme one way or the other don't say weird or bad things don't you know uh don't go out there trying to be like some foreign poet you encountered somewhere and bringing a whole new style into the into the tradition you know that's that's uh that's not how you're going to create a beautiful work of art that's going to match with uh, the beautiful things that are around us, such as nature and and uh, and divinity and all this other stuff,
0: right? I mean, to a certain extent, that the the Kenny G misreading of you know the jazz tradition is is a. Um, what is a strong misreading? <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of belongs to him uniquely, and it also like really resonated uh, with people. I'm you know I'm not sure that it's an artistically strong tradition. You know, like no. or, I mean, not it's sure not some- even
1: it's it's an aversion, is what it is, right? Like that's how it sort of seemed to me is that he actively doesn't like it. Yeah, right? like he doesn't he doesn't want to do it. He he was trained to do it, and he was trained to love it, and he was taught to love it. But at the end of the day, he didn't love it. He didn't yeah. like it. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to play it. So he didn't. And that's one of the condemnations in the work. I know you were pointing out that New Yorker review and uh, I thought it was interesting that he latched, the reviewer latched onto that moment, right? Where he's like, I don't want to go out there and play like Coltrane. I don't like Coltrane, right? Mm. <laughs> and uh, and that seems like an absurd statement because Coltrane is so much more impressive and greater than you, right? But uh, at the same time, who can't identify with not liking something? Um, you might see perhaps Kenny G as a as a brick in the yellow brick road toward from the worker to the consumer focused culture right that that that's what easy listening is is that it's well if you don't like it then you don't have to listen to it and you can listen to something else when the Wasteland is a really impressive and influential and important poem, but it also is the death knell of poetry because, you know, it uh, it's the first poem everybody hears of that convinces them that poetry is is unpleasant and boring and impossible to understand and not worth your time. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, and so it's a difficult it's a difficult thing. You know, are are you more concerned with the work of music or are you more concerned with the act of listening um, and the joy Let me rephrase the joy of the joy the pleasure, the pleasure of listening to it, I suppose. Which I'm not saying that that's an easy defense, right? And it's it's not. But it's I'm trying to track down how you can supposedly be the you know most you know they they, hesitate, they never say most popular. It's always best selling, right? Best selling you know instrumental musician of all time, best selling jazz artist of all time, and not like jazz, right? Like not and not want to do it. Yeah, well,
0: it's yeah, it's sort of instrumental musician is the category that I heard kind of thrown thrown around in the in the the documentary uh, about, and it is. I mean, it is interesting. Like that, there isn't you know the people are are coming to at coming to it with sort of different frames and don't realize that their their you know arguments the the like their argumentation is just like launching out from their frame like completely skewed to to the other like the the his being the um you know his being the mo- the best selling uh the best selling instrumental musician doesn't really obtain if you' if your point of view is like well I have no more no more desire to to pass my head under the yoke because a million men hold it for me uh mm. and and his being you you'd think right <laughs> and right well it just doesn't it doesn't obtain but then but then like the the you know the argument uh, the argument that, like, this is in some, some way bad, right? Like, that this is in some, like, esoteric way bad, um, does not obtain if your, if your frame is that, like, superiority is no substitute for victory, right? Mm. And, and certainly, certainly Kenny G must rank up there among one of the more victorious, mm. uh, victorious saxophonist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, the, I, I am pronouncing it in the, in a the, in the british way the whole on on purpose um but that like uh you know he's a he's a he's a highly victorious saxophonist i i like i i am i'm really interested in the competitive parts of Kenichi, right because he d- i think he has a sort of chill persona that i th- seems like um uh That seems highly cultivated uh mm-hmm. to me and like very very rigorously policed and kind of maintained but the you don't you don't spend three hours practicing every day and probably more you mm-hmm. know uh as a younger man um you you don't put in those hours without like a a a bunch of aggression you know that that powers it um you don't have the you, you just need energy like that battery you need to charge that battery that keeps you you know uh, through the frustration through the uh you know disappointment through the the learning process you know through the kind of the ups and downs inherent in kind of learning and pushing yourself um in order to keep it in order to keep it going you need uh you know you need a a, a Love, you need some gas in the tank. And that's like, you know, and so the aggression is sort of like sublimated, you know, um, right? Like the, the desire to murder everybody, right? Is, <laughs> is, uh, is sublimated. It's sort of turned inward. But then to hear him talk about like, to hear him talk about like, oh, no, I want to be the best. Like, I want to get out mm-hmm. there, you know, and, and be the best. Like, he wants to be dominant. I want to be the inner, the best interview that you've ever had. Is this go- mm-hmm. I'll do anything it takes to be the best you know the best interview i'll sit here for 14 hours without or 12 hours what do you say without food without water and that's like that's an interesting right that's that's an interesting thing that the the for him the competitiveness the like the extreme competitiveness Ooh. manifests as a version of asceticism like i'm going to go without food and water you know, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like just sit my ass in this chair and play for, for three hours, for four hours. Um, that like, I, I don't know, man. Like I never, I never had it. I, I was supposed to be a really fancy piano player. Like I was a, a five year old piano kid. You know, I was an annoying piano kid, Pete. I, and I, I'm still a pretty damn good player like to the point where i can you know make my way as a professional musician and i did for a lot of my 20s that's how i supported my acting habit uh, because musicians are so much more in demand (laughs) so much more in demand than actors um go figure but the you know but uh i did not have that uh, i just didn't have that um i don't know that engine that like uh uh, that fire to sort to, to sort of keep the, keep the focus, keep the focus going. And, you know, whether it was my, my self-diagnosed ADHD or whether it was that I was interested in other things or whether, whether it was because like some, you know, defect or, or not, uh, why moralize it like that? Some, some sort of aspect of my personality just, just made me not tolerate the, uh, the normal frustration of, of learning new stuff. Um, you know, the, that like, uh, there were so many more gratifying things to do. Um, that like, uh, I, I never had it. And so like, I, I really admire it. Like, I really recognize it. Um, I really recognize it and admire it. Um, but you know, uh, to, to a certain extent, uh, it, it like, um, to, to, uh, I recognize it and I admire it, but I, I don't sort of marvel at it, you know, like, cause it's not, it's anti sublime. <laughs> Uh, yes. The, yes. the, the, like the, the Kenny G mentality of, I'm just going to be like, I'm going to master technique for its own sake, not, you know, not in the way that you, you, uh, you would expect an artist to say it, which is that like, I'm going to master technique to such an extent that like the things that I want to say, or like the projects that I have, or like the, you know, the wishes that I have, uh, for art, for communication, for connection, for, you know uh depicting something or portraying something or kind of getting something across for accomplishing something so that my own uh, uh uh you know technical limitations don't stand in the way of that right like it's it's um it's an instrumental and not an intrinsic good but he's talking about it as though it's the intrinsic good that like the thing the comp the real competition is to hold the longest note or the real competition is to play the fastest, uh, you know, the fastest runs or whatever. And I, I mean, I think that's fascinating just as the, just as the study of, a, as the study of a personality. And, and I wonder if it isn't this sort of lack of sublimity, you know, the, the, all this bombast without any sublimity, you know, that, that makes it so popular because Mm. to, to a great extent, um, you know, it's it's. Think of it, Pete. Think of it like a a hollowed out candle that still maintains the shape of a candle, uh, while all the wax, all the inner, the wick, and and so you su- you supply, you pour in your own light to the mm-hmm. candle. And you realize, and, and, and you say to, uh, you say of the candle, Pete, you say of it, uh, look how this candle glows. Behold my candle. <laughs> etche. <laughs> you know, the, look <laughs> at the, and, and you don't realize, uh, that really the, can- what the candle did was provide, uh, uh, provide a vessel into which you could pour your own light. Um, in, you know, in, in which you could see yourself. Uh, or, or see your own sublimity, um, your own sublime feelings and, um, drives and aspirations, uh, you know, in a way that, that was not possible. And, and it's the kind of, it's the, the very weird sterility, um, of this guy that like, uh, that makes it, you know, uh, that makes, that makes that possible. Like it was like he, it wasn't even like, it wasn't even that like the weird uh, absence of like a family or like a partner type relationship was all that was all that um, uh, uh, strange. The absence of any friend at all, Mm. right. Was strange. Yeah. Wasn't it gave us just a strange
1: feeling. Anyway, I said a lot. So I'll echo. I'm going to jump off of what you said by talking about one of the great jazz works of the 1980s which is of course careless whisper by wham you know it's jazz because it has a saxophone and a rhythm section (laughs) so are you familiar with careless whisper by wham written by Uh, mr george michael by wham wham yeah. Uh, yes, Pete. I am. Okay. Good. Other that other that was not a, a rhetorical question. I thought
0: it was a rhetorical question. Are Are you listening here to the this? The, all right. This is Careless Whisper. It's going out from Pete yeah. Fenzel to the overthinking at podcast audience. And Pete says he's never going to podcast again the way he podcasted with you. <laughs> uh, go for it.
1: Yes. So, how many saxophone players do you think? George Michael brought in to attempt to play the sax solo in the wham song, Careless Whisper.
0: Oh gosh, I don't know. This is good
1: knowledge, but I don't know it. I've been reading up on famous saxophonists or I suppose famous works of pop saxophone, because what I wanted to comment on is yes, there are certain things in this documentary that are strangely missing. One of the things that's strangely missing is any discussion of the rise and fall of pop saxophone which is not limited to Kenny G and smooth jazz at all, right? Saxophones started appearing. I mean, if Mark was here, he'd start talking about the big man and Bruce Springsteen, so I'll have to do it in his absence, right? But there's so many sax solos in rock and roll and pop songs in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, and then they just sort of drop off a cliff, right? And they vanish. Uh, And uh, I can't help but think that maybe Kenny G, in the creation of his pop music, has more, owes more to that tradition than to the tradition of the jazz artists that he is supposedly following in the footsteps of and irritating so much by using their name not of his own choice for the radio format his music is played in yeah but um but george michael and this i think speaks to people were talking about how kenny g didn't have any artistry right he didn't have any there wasn't anything to it right Uh, the jazz critics who were talking about his music, how it was so inoffensive, there was an implication that there was, uh, I mean, you could interpret it as a lack of effort, right? A lack of intellectual effort, a lack of engagement, a lack of care, certainly a lack of care, a lack of a certain duty of care, an abrogation of duty to care about other jazz, right? Which was not being done during these recordings. So George Michael brought in 11 different saxophone players because the first 10 didn't get the sax solo for Careless Whisper right, which was played on the demo that George Michael originally made by a friend of his who didn't know how to play saxophone very well at all in a bar. And so he kept trying to get these really good, really highly trained session saxophone players from all over the world to play the sax solo the way that it appeared in his demo because he was convinced that the way that that sax solo was played was going to be a hit record and the technique that they eventually used unbeknownst to George Michael to finally create a sax solo that was to his satisfaction is they lowered the key so they they recorded the key a semitone lower than the recording on the demo and then sped and they recorded it slower and then they sped the tape back up so that it matched the uh pitch of the uh, initial demo and then as soon as george michael was like oh that's it that's it you got it uh and it, it was number one right within it it's uh it, within two weeks of it coming out it had a nine-week run as a number one hit right wow. and and what i'm saying and this is shouldn't impress you in terms of good saxophone playing because this is not an exercise in good saxophone playing um but it was fascinating to see how much I got excited. I need to smooth it down, smooth it down, easy listening, easy listening. How much Kenny G would go back and edit in the individual notes, right? In order to make sure that every note sounded perfect. And, and there was one thing that one of the uh, early critics in the movie, in the documentary said that I wanted to uh, point out, especially in our talk about the matrix, which is, there was a t- I think he said something to the effective. there was a time where you know the corporations wanted to put out a sort of maximum monoculture or sell a uh, superstar to the most number of people, right? And this is framed. In ideological terms, I believe. Right. In terms of, uh, you know, discourses of control. There's a lot of uh, that sort of analysis of Kenny G that's happening in this movie. And, and it's interesting how much it contrasts from Kenny G's account of what happened. Right. So, for example, I think Kenny G puts it pretty well when he says, well, these people are saying that. You know, I I make this sound specifically because I know it will sell and I'm not that smart, which seems like a lie because he's his teacher says he's extremely smart. And you get the sense talking, hearing him talk that he's very intelligent, even if he's, you know, has some big blind spots. But the point being that um that Kenny G tried a whole bunch of different things before he got to the point where he was making music became really popular. And he had to rebel against his record label and against The Tonight Show in order to put his sound out there. Right. But the the other the other point here is that um, uh, I don't necessarily think while there is a an ideological effect of this and you can see it in politics at the same time as well. Right. one one historical moment that I have in my head that I've decided in my head is really important. And I don't know if you guys uh, do this. If you say, you know, this thing that happened that nobody ever talks about, I think this was really important. One thing that sticks in my head that is really important is the uh, Bob Dole when Bob Dole and Bill Clinton ran for president against each other. Remember that in 1996? Boy, howdy Uh, that, which is prime Kenny G time. I mean, Kenny Bill Clinton said that Kenny G was his favorite musician, which is, uh, is uh, well, but, something but, that is mentioned in the documentary. Yeah,
0: Bill Clinton was, was himself a saxophonist.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, of course. There a, you go. I, and indeed, he, meant, he won
0: yeah. the presidency twice, so he was a victorious saxophonist.
1: <laughs> Perhaps he was the most victorious saxophonist. Uh, <laughs> Certainly um,
0: among the most.
1: <laughs> but it was a remarkably low turnout presidential election. And it is the last presidential election, in at least from my own rudimentary analysis of it, in the United States where the strategy hinged around the message that was being promoted by the mass media right that starting in 2000 instead of having this idea of we have to we have our median voter theorem we have our big message that we want to put out we're going to put it out through advertising and tv and everything and we're going to try to appeal to the largest number of people possible uh, by that even by 1996 this was starting to fall apart and by 2000 you're getting into the area of okay we've identified a fragmented group of many many different kinds of constituents and we are going to target them using technology and the internet and, and phones and other sorts of low technology. But like we're going to be trying to piece together our election much more from the individual constituencies and finding our voters and bringing them to the polls as much as talking to everybody with a mass media strategy to tell them like, this is who we are and this is why you should vote for me rather than the other guy. Right. Um, And that this becomes a, it's much bigger. It accelerates dramatically. So by 2004, you know, you're, you're much more dealing with email marketing than you are with the mass TV marketing is the stuff that's really making a difference. Then by 2008, it's Obama and everything's social. Right. And now, of course, nowadays you can't have a presidential uh, election that isn't constantly happening in the hyper reality of social media much more than it's happening on mass media or mainstream media. Um, but all that notwithstanding, right, I don't think that it is an ideological uh, phenomena that this was a time when artists were being scaled up as much as possible. Uh, I mean, Jordan has talked to me about this a couple times, and it stuck in my head. Then I don't know if if this is a moment or a, a thing that that sticks in your head. This is the CD age, right? Yes. And so, and so one connection that nobody in the documentary necessarily draws is somebody like Kenny G, who is in a lot of ways similar to another person who's been mentioned on this podcast, Celine Dion, puts an incredible amount of attention to making a perfect recording, right? In the age of CD, when the fidelity of the recordings is really high and the reproducibility of the recording is very easy, right? If you create a perfect high fidelity recording of the highest quality, it can be reproduced into millions of discs comparatively cheaply, and they can be distributed all over the world comparatively easily, right? It can be played on all the radio stations, you know, right after it comes out, right? Uh, Because we have the ability to digitally encode music uh, at this high level And but we still also also have the physical media infrastructure
0: and also to reproduce, to reproduce it very quickly.
1: Right. And so I don't necessarily think that that the tail and the dog that's being wagged here. And I don't know if this is what the person would say, but I don't think the important influential thing that's happening is that the big wigs have decided that everybody is going to like Kenny G. And this is what we're going to do. And we're going it's more like the situations and conditions of the recording, reproduction and distribution of music favor a highly scaled reproduction and rebroadcast of a single, very high fidelity recording, which Kenny G is putting a tremendous amount of work into. Right. Sure. And, and and this more than anything should be thought of as the, antithetical to the program to the very project of jazz. Right. Like, like jazz is, it should not be surprising that this is not the jazz era, right? Is the era when you sit down and you painstakingly create the single best recording of the music that you can do. Flawless, right? Uh, again, is flawless music the best? At this era, it is, right? But I mean, and that's what this is also the you know that's why grunge is such a rebellion against what's happening, right? And that's why you know hip hop and telling the truth, right, is sort of emerging as as in opposition to this dominant discourse of like Kenny Genus and perfect pop, right? Um, and and just you know Patrick Swayze's glistening hair under perfect lighting, right? Like this is you know the movies, the CD, all a lot of it has to do with this this the technology has happened but the distribution technology hasn't happened, right? And, and the, the bifurcation and shattering of the audience hasn't happened, right? So you're at this very, this, this nexus point, this inflection point where you know, one wave is cresting and the other one you know, is sort of just, is just starting, right? It's like one is at the beginning of coming up and one of them is not quite coming down, right? And, uh, and, and I think that Kenny G is the man of the moment. Right. And he 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 talks about this a little bit at the end of the documentary where he was very lucky to be making music at a time when people would buy millions of records. But he doesn't express the kind of understanding of it that would apply to anyone other than himself. Right. And it's like those were the good old days. Right. Like I can't sell as much as many records anymore as I used to. And it's like, well, yeah, no, but neither can anybody else. Right. Right. And so
0: that's yeah, that's very interesting that like, you know, there 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 are people who are I mean, there there are everything, you know, the it's it's interesting to think about the kind of the material reality behind the popularity of of certain things right like mm. and you it's it's easier to see in business i think like in you know um it's easy to see the businesses that like really took to television right the businesses that really sort of took to catalogs when when you know reproduction of color color catalogs and and sending sending them out became uh reasonably priced uh and the businesses that you know have really taken to sort of digital media and what what uh uh, you know the the possibilities that 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 unlocks but you you think it well maybe one one might think of one's musical taste outside of the realm of uh of those particular things and what what you're saying interestingly is that if kenny g had not existed it would have been necessary to invent him uh, that, there, you know, that there there was going to be someone, you know, to there was going to be like uh, uh there was going to be a G, even if it was not uh, even if it was not Kenny.
1: Well, there um, were other ones. They yeah. just weren't. I mean, the whole smooth jazz radio format wouldn't have existed. It wouldn't have been the not- notable thing Kenny G does is he brings this particular sort of saxophone into the main voice of the song. Right. Um, but if you look at like who are the top artists of the of the 90s. Right. I'm going to I'm going to look. Oh, I don't I looked at the.
0: I mean some of the like the instrumental music or jazz or, or R&B or like adult contemporary like it, the charts that they showed in the film it was Kenny G and then a lot of artists that I was not familiar with like whose names I didn't recognize. Yeah.
1: Well it's the age of pavarotti also. Pavarotti is this but for opera. A guy who can do it perfectly once. Right. Although it's the opposite of Kenny G, because the reason he can't do it perfectly more than once is because of his hard partying lifestyle and excessive drinking and like poor care of himself. Right. And so, like, there's a couple of different kinds of people who can produce that one perfect recording Um, and uh, uh, um, which is different than sort of crafting the perfect album, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily well, yeah, I mean, think it doesn't, yeah.
0: the, the technology to do what he does with like comping, I nearly said comping vocals, but they're like vocals. The comping is his, uh, you know, main sax tracks, um, is, uh, you know, is he's got stacks and stacks of sax tracks, yeah. uh, but the, the, um, you know that technology wasn't available, and though you could do things like punch in and out uh, on reel-to-reel tape tape uh, machines, which is almost undoubtedly what what he would have been using back in in that time. I think ADAT existed. Elisa's ADAT existed, but wasn't. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe at the level he was doing it, it was, it was widespread, but, but you know, digital recording, there was still a lot of analog, analog recording. Like I, like I learned to do on a a real to real tape machine. And that's like, that's a lot. Uh, it's a lot harder to get that level of, you got to do more live in the room and you can't necessarily like punch in for one note or something like that. And, uh, and so this kind of like pointillist note by note, uh, you know, um, thing that he does, uh, these days is not, uh, it wasn't necessarily possible then in, in the same way, but I'm, I'm sure the ambition to do it was, uh, you know, undiminished, even though the, the technology might not have caught up with him a
1: little bit at that time. Are you familiar with type and anti-type Matt type and and anti-type as hermeneutical principles? Yes, but it's been a while, Pete. I, I
0: I mean of of course I am, Pete. Gosh, of course I am. But why don't for the listeners you explain what you So you
1: know. type and anti-type as hermeneutical principles refers to the study of the Bible and the notion that there oh, are right, sure. characters okay. in the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible who are echoes of each other and who serve to either presage or imitate or or, or uh you know reflect uh, common threads and themes, right? But but even in the sense of being kind of different different sides of the same coin right and they often are seen as having similar names joshua and yeshua right joshua and jesus is you know moses and whatnot and and, um moses and john the baptist or something like that you know i'll lead you the promised land but i can't go there with you stuff like that it occurs to me that we shouldn't even be asking the question of who would be the kenny g if kenny g wasn't there because kenny g isn't the i forget which one's the primary one he's not the type he's the anti-type right um think of the hair right and and think of the style right and the sort of complexity and and the sort of range the pitch range of the vocal play right And uh, of the sort of the sorry, the soprano saxophone play and the painstaking precision of the recording and perfect reproduction of that sort of perfect, beautiful moment that is both exists within a tradition, but also seems to be entirely its own and also seems to thumb its eye in the tradition in a way that is baffling and kind of confusing and a bit offensive. Right. And and I think in particular, if you just think of the silhouette of that hair. What you would really think is that, you know, there is one other than Kenny G and Kenny G isn't fit to tie their their giant golden sp- spangled sandal. Um, of course, I'm talking about Mariah Carey. Huh. Mariah Carey is the real Kenny G. I mean, she's, she's a vision.
0: She's, she's a vision of love.
1: She has a vision of love. And that and, is all
0: that she turned out to be. <laughs>
1: But think about it, right? A virtuosic, melody-driven vocal performer with the lines and the complexity of the articulation of the melody who has this relationship with rhythm and blues singing that, of course, with Mariah Carey, she gives up on this initial impression that has been formed for her by her uh, by her handlers, as it were, and her producers and whatnot. Um, you might even think that Mimi at one point was emancipated, mm. uh, right? But at this time period, I think you can argue that the forces that are shaping the forces that are creating a Kenny G sized hole in the world have also, you know, lifted a Mariah Carey shaped stage, right? And uh, and, it, and I think maybe this what this is saying is at some point we need to do a Mariah Carey cast, and I maybe maybe the holidays might be a good occasion to do it because that seems to be when she reaches her full power and devours the head of one of her assistants or something. Yeah. <laughs>
0: She has a new, uh, she has a new record out. So they're, they're, uh, not a new record, new Christmas special. So, uh, who knows? Maybe that's, uh, maybe that, uh, lies in, in store for us because the, uh, the The weather outside is flight frightful, but the podcast is so delightful delightful because it's smooth all right, cats and kittens we want to thank you for listening to the overthinking of podcast thanks very much to pete p d f pete f the 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 p b to my j uh who's uh you know been podcasting with me through the night and into the morning i'm not rather we can uh you as always on thinking.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve.
1: I wish that I could open the door to my bathroom and just have a candle. Play candy G as it floats through the air in its reverberation. Just imagine it. Visualize it. Um, I can smell it. Yeah. By the way, Kenny G's not good. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what the G no.
0: stands for. It stands for garlic.
1: Okay. Oh, okay. Good, good, good. I, I, I want to make sure that 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 and also I have terrible taste in music and did in the 90s as well so I'm not defending any of that nonsense <laughs>